Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Today's guest is Emma Harris, marketing legend, who has worked brandside for Eurostar and Virgin Holidays, and now CEO and founder of Glow London. Hello, Emma. Hello, Tamara. And what I didn't mention is that the social element is also lucky enough to have Emma on the exec team. So Wendy and I have the pleasure of working with you. And it's, in fact, your lovely voice on the podcast intro for those people who may have noticed that. It is. So, Emma, let's jump straight in. Can you tell us, firstly, how Glow came about? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I left Eurostar in 2012, so I've been there 10 years, which is an incredibly long time, and sort of felt there was nowhere else for me to go. And it took ages for me to convince them to let me go. They kept trying to create little teams and departments and jobs for me, but I, between us and everyone listening, I wanted to leave with a big fat check, so sort of waited patiently to explain to them, no, my role is no longer viable. Anyway, but literally, I think the day I signed that agreement... I realised I was pregnant and like, damn, French maternity leave is really good. But I thought, well, you know, I didn't know whether I was going to be an earth mother or want to, you know, throw a nanny at my child. So I thought I'll start consulting, you know, and all my mates in the agency world were the first people I turned to. Said, look, in fact, a few of them came to say, can you help us? A big thing I'd done when I was at Eurostar is rebrand them. And um, the journey was so immense. And uh, and I'd also led the change management when we moved from Waterloo to St Pancras. So I had this very commercial background, very brand background, but also recognised brand is more than just the colouring in. It's all about the people. And actually the time I spent influencing people at the depot and, you know, in finance, how to deliver on the brand, no one else was doing that, I realised. So I started off doing some brand work on proposition stuff and then it became, I, I couldn't just leave and go, great, now you know who you are, goodbye. I was like, well, how, how are you going to deliver this into the business? How are you going to engage people? How are you going to take people on the journey with you? So kind of there was was, was born Glow. And then I, I, I the story um, of how I actually came up with the name, I, I did a vision exercise with a coach in a very dark time in my life, actually. Sorry, getting straight into it, where I had lost my mom and lost a baby and was really lost in terms of who I was and had this coaching session. I was like, everything's dark in my world. And she made me find some light. And I did this vision exercise where I was at the Shard drinking champagne and announcing this partnership with the business, which was January, ended up happening in January 2019. But I saw in that vision there was a word on a board that was like, it was like two letters, then an O, then something else. So it was really weird how, whether that's, you know, what I don't know if they say art creating life or life creating art, but that's how it, it all came to fruition. I love that. I love that story so much. And and I I was lucky enough to be at the Shard with you toasting, uh, toasting that launch. And uh, yeah, and you you told that story there and everyone was just, Oh yeah, it was goosebumps moment as well. 
But how did you get into marketing in the first place? Was it always a passion? Did you fall into it? I thought of a bit of both. I sort of always fancied it. <laughs> always fancied a crack at it. But I kind of fell into sales. So I, I kind of fell into sales. I just think everyone just always thought it was a natural transition for me being someone who, as my mum always said, I could sell ice to the Eskimos. So I, I kind of came out, went, started in business-to-business marketing. When I was at uni, I did one of those summer jobs. And um, it was in business-to-business marketing. And uh, it was actually promoting agencies. It was kind of doing an outsourced sort of new biz thing for agencies. Really interesting. And then I was there for a few years and did love it. But I was literally backball and wicketkeeper. It's a tiny business. I was pretty much running it. I was working ridiculous hours. And eventually I sort of said, look, I need to kind of be a partner or something. And the woman that was running it said, I think you should, here's a pension. So, uh, and I was earning about 50p in a cheese roll a year. So I I started interviewing for jobs and got a job at, and ended up at Bass, which is now Molson Coors, which is one of our clients, and didn't really know anything about brands or marketing. But when you go into sales in an FMCG business and I, I you know it's the best place to cut your teeth because they teach you everything so you get put into a, your own P&L and they teach you how to be sort of mini MD so you learn huge amounts about brand about finance about marketing everything and you know beer is brilliant for marketeers because it's basically the same stuff in different tints and the loyalty you create it's all brand so that that was the beginnings. And then when I came out of there, I went into Euristar and I was sales director for a long time and they kept throwing new bits at me. And then after the change management piece, it was such an obvious transition because I'd gone into Euristar with such a brand lens of even in sales, you've got to know who you are. And I was fairly critical vocally of the marketing team at the time. And then um, there was a guy called Greg Nugent who ended up going to do all the, the brands for the Olympics. Um, and he was the marketing director and we were like the perfect work wife. We always said we are, you know, perfect marriage, argued constantly and never had sex. <laughs> and, um, and then when he left, they just sort of gave me his job. They just said, look, the teams are working so closely together because it's always been my belief. Sales and marketing has to be one thing. It has to be completely seamless. So that was it, really. So I, 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 I'm highly unqualified. It's a calling. Yes. So let's go back a bit further and talk about what led up to all this. And we'll start with Emma the child, if that's okay. So what were you like when you were little? Well, my nickname in my family was Big Jaw when I was little and then ended up being the gov, the governor. So, I mean, you can imagine what that's like. So I was the youngest of three children, classic sort of Jewish upbringing. And yeah, just even though I was the youngest, I just was incredibly bossy from, you know, my mum said she didn't ever remember me not talking. And one of our friends who was a babysitter when I was little says she remembers me genuinely convincing her why my bedtime shouldn't be whatever it was. And that she, I, I then sat and watched Question Time with her and genuinely, as a three-year-old, sort of made pertinent comments about it. So I was, you know, always way above my years. Then when I was 12, my mum got really ill. So my mum, who's like alpha female like me, overnight, pretty much got taken from us, even though she sadly, you know, lost her personality, really lost her short term memory. So once you've lost that kind of ability to follow through, but wasn't dead. And that sounds awful. So she was still there, but was taken from us. So it was everything changed from that moment, really. Um, And I just took over. I just took over the family. I mean, I just, yeah. 
well, all the teachers always say I was way above my years. And I, my dad always, God rest his soul, said I just, I haven't stopped talking since the minute I was born. Which I think we're seeing evidence of. In this <laughs> we love it. And, and when you were growing up, what did you want to be? What did you want to do for work? I was told very much I should be a lawyer. Because again, it's this sort of, you know, selling sounds to the Arabs thing. But I wanted to be an actor which is interesting, I ended up marrying one, isn't it? My mum was um, was at arts educational until she was 16, and then her parents sadly couldn't afford to keep her there, so um, pulled her out to be a secretary. But it was always a passion of hers, so she always encouraged us to do whatever we wanted to do. So I did want to be an actor, although she then did, once I got in my teens, told me I shouldn't bother because I was too fat and I'd never make it. But then she was trying to convince me to be a barrister, because a lot of barristers are frustrated actors because they're it's all about the performance. But then when I got hit sort of uni age and started realising actually doing law is really hard work, um, I chose to do media instead and the rest is history. Did you ever do any acting? Only at school. I was always in the school plays and, you know, I won a couple of talent competitions. But that's why when we, you know, we needed someone to do the voiceover for the intro for Genuine Humans, I was like, I'll do it. So there's obviously a, and secretly when I work on Danny with his self-tapes and his lines, I'm always secretly thinking that I'll go, well, yes, Danny Sapani's quite good, but what, who was the other person doing the lines with him? <laughs> get her on stage now. Exactly. Well, get her on screen. I always think I'm secretly going to be discovered via... Vicariously through Danny. <laughs> so, what's the worst job you've ever had? Well, it's part of the, one of the best jobs. I mean, I think my time at Bass was probably, you know, as a 20 something year old driving around town in a BMW drinking on account. I think that was a pretty cool job. It was really hard work. But the, that, that process of training and induction is really hardcore. And at one point, we had to go and work behind a bar. And all my mates got really cushy gigs. And I was sent to like, a horrendous part of Wales, which was in a, in a proper drinking men's pub. And the guy that I was, you know, was supposed to sort of train me up on, on what it's like to be behind a bar so I could experience it from a customer's point of view. That was the idea. Just thought he had free, free labor. And I was doing like 12 hour shifts and getting abused by people because I was English, you know, in the, in the heartlands of Wales, it was really tough really tough I remember in the evenings there was a few of us sent to work in Cardiff and the surrounding areas and they were all like oh, we had a great day I did about an hour behind the bar and you know been drinking cocktails and I was like in tears exhausted from the abuse so I think that for me was a really horrible experience but probably did me well as a an English kid who grew up in Scotland in the 70s and 80s I feel your pain <laughs> oh god I only had to do it for three days I can't remember <laughs> What advice would you give to your teenage self now, if you could? I think believe, which is probably a really cliche one, but I do a lot of work with young women, mentoring and coaching and and I, I, I'm not even young women. I think confidence for women is a really big issue. They say, you know, a woman can look at a CV and if she can do 65% of it, she'll apply. And if a man can do 80% of it, he'll apply. And I think we suffer a lot more with imposter syndrome than men do. And mm. certainly, you know, I've mentioned my mother's don't get be an actor because you're fat thing. When I first took Danny home for dinner, she said to me, oh, I just don't want to get upset because, and I said, why will I get upset? She said, when he breaks up with you. Well, mum, we're 11 years down the line, so we're still hanging in there. But, you know, I think there was, I, I, I really want my daughters to grow up with this sense of belief and confidence 
and you know the voices in our head and I think particularly now are really loud because we're not distracted enough with all the fabulous things we've got outside of our houses for those mm. of us that are still in lockdown so I think it's just that you know I, I would love to say you know you're amazing believe in yourself and and just to you know help understand that all those noises don't exist I, I've done so much work on NLP and um, a, a lot of stuff around belief and it's such yeah I wish someone had given me that as a teenager the understanding of the fact that your thoughts and feelings don't exist and that you have control you can be anything you want in life you could have been an actor M but instead you married one there you go <laughs> you still could be that's true <laughs> I know that the impact that you've had on the social element in in helping people with their confidence and, and self-belief has, has been immense so please keep doing that for other people as well I will. I mean, it's where I get probably my most energy from. You know, I work with Marketing Academy, as you know, as well, a lot. And when I do a boot camp and I get messages, you know, I've had messages from people saying, you know, you changed my life and I've given my husband another chance. I've got my dream job. You know, it's not what I'm, it's not me. It's the the, the tools I'm giving them, the learnings I'm giving them. Yeah. To, and, and if I can give that to my kids, that would be the greatest gift. I bet you've worked with some amazing people over the years. Has there been anyone in particular who's influenced your career? It's a really tough one. I can name a few people. Tomorrow's definitely one of them. I, I think the person who springs to mind the most is a guy called Keith Hatter, who is the founder of Planet K2, who actually owns 30% of Glow. They're, so they're kind of my, my, I've got several families. So Social Elements, one of my family, and Planet K2 sort of another work family. And then I've got the Glow family. Then I've got my Virgin family. Um, I'm very incestuous. So, but <laughs> Keith, in 2006, when I was at Eurostar, and I was this kind of, you know, burn it at both ends, party girl, work hard, play hard, single, crazy person, you know, 300 people working for me, sent on this program called the Athlete at Work program. And I was a bit like, oh, God built for comfort, not speed, athletes, not really my thing. And went in this room thinking, oh, this is just something that's going to take me out of the business for three days. I really don't have time for this. And Keith stood up and started talking and absolutely changed my life. And what he talked about was, you know, what Planet K2 all about is helping business people take all the learnings from elite sport in terms of performance and apply it to themselves and really own your own performance. And that's, you know, most of us just doing what I did then, which was just go hell for leather on, what am I doing today? How am I gonna get through the day? That tactical approach to life. Whereas athletes think about their physical, their contextual, their emotional, their mental, and really giving people the tools. And that's all this, you know, really helps with resilience, with performance, with readiness. You know, you can't control everything, but control the controllables. And, and, and it changed my life and Keith and I, not long after that, I sort of said, look, can we meet up? I want to see why Planet K2 isn't running the world and became the non-exec director eventually when the, they said, oh, right, we'll make it official. Stop interfering. <laughs> um, and now they're, they're a shareholder in Glow. And, you know, he's just the person, you know, along with Tamara, who I know when I'm struggling, I can phone and it will help me find the way through and make me feel like I'm not alone. So, yeah, he's just... And, and a glow wouldn't be what it is today if it wasn't for him and his belief in me and his support of me. And I'm going to bring the conversation round to brands again. So thinking about any brand that you've worked with, so brand side or agency side, 
What has been the biggest transformation that you've seen? I'm probably going to say Eurostar because that was there where I was there 10 years and it went through such change. When I joined in 2001, it was basically, it was eight years old, it was growing, 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 and it was run by mostly ex sort of British rail right. engineers, which is how you have to talk when you talk about British rail engineers who had no commercial acumen. I'm sure anything listening won't mind me saying so. And then, you know, 2001, and when I joined, they were like, it's really great, come for the party, you get bonuses every year and it's just growing 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 because it was a new toy and then when literally the month I joined the recession hit and then September then 9-11 happened in that September and the arse fell out of the business market and I was in business sales at the beginning and I suppose I was just right place right time come from this highly commercial FMCG you know we did everything to two decimal places on a margin and there was I was working people that didn't even know what the budget was And the change that we went through in the sort of following decade is remarkable. And the talent that people, people like Nick Mercer came into the business and, you know, we, and people like Greg and, you know, there was a really amazing talented group. I've put myself in that, oops, um, talented group of people running commercial. And then when we, we wanted to move from Waterloo to the Pancras, that change program was unbelievable. I worked with an incredible person called Dan Dobson-Smith, who was head of learning and development, and him and I ran the change programme. And in a year, or to 18 months, we completely changed the business from being this sort of, you know, legacy business in Waterloo to a future-facing business in Pancras. And our engagement scores in one year went up 24%, which I didn't realise at the time is unheard of they're normally a really amazing growth program would be 6%. Um, and we, we grew at 24%. So I think that big change, you know, and the, and the energy behind it. In fact, we worked with Planet K2. They coached the leadership team to get through it because it was 18 months of unbelievable. And you had to keep the trains running literally at the same time. So building a station, changing overnight from, from from King's Waterloo to King's Cross and then also Pancras and then also we had the depot moving overnight from west to east London I mean it was incredibly complex so that's incredible change I was very honoured to be part of and if you think about your entire career so far so not not you being uh Oscar winning actress just yet but uh what, what you've done so far what are you most proud of I'll tell you if I won the Oscar before he did I think <laughs> that would be big trouble um <laughs> I mean, I think it has to be some pancreas, even though obviously that moment on stage at when I launched Glow was so incredible that you know, having come from such a dark place to actually make that vision come true was amazing. But I have to say that morning stood on the station in St Pancras and watching the first train depart. And I had Richard Brown, who's the CEO on one, one side of me, and Richard George, who was the guy who led the whole project, and we had a tear in our eye as the first train left. And it was, you know, just an incredible moment to to actually make that happen. And really, the station wasn't ready. It was six months too early and we'd winged a lot of it. But we made it happen and the world's press were there. And it was lauded as a huge success. In fact, when, when BA launched T5 a few months later and it was a complete disaster, everyone looked at us and went, now that's how you do change. <laughs> so, yeah, it, was, it still remains, I think, just the sheer teamwork and the energy and the journey that we went on and yeah it was a real moment fantastic what's the biggest difference that you've noticed between working brand side and agency side 
don't know if this is a sort of a, a thing that one should talk about, but I just think the politics in, in corporate world is so much more present. I love being agency side because it's so much more entrepreneurial. And you just get, I think, feel like there's more space to be who you want to be and, and there's much less bureaucracy. And, you know, I, I, I busted my way through Eurostar, slightly ignoring a lot of the politics, but it's definitely my friends that work client side. I definitely feel there's much more of a permission to fail. And in Asia side, because you're working on different brands all the time and you're doing different things, and I think it does attract a certain type of personality, um, you know, particularly when we're lucky enough to be in, in independent agencies, maybe it's less so in the big network ones, but certainly my experience of working agency side is just, yeah, just that entrepreneurial spirit and that that inclusivity in the literal sense of the word of celebration of you much more. I just absolutely love it. And I've very soon after I made that decision to, you know, start helping people as well I saw it that consultancy piece I actually got offered a couple of big jobs and one of them and I don't know if the person involved is listening but I nearly I literally clinked champagne glasses as you do to celebrate that I was going to take the job and it was a marketing job I'd even convinced them just they were recruiting a sales director as well and I was like I'll just give me them both because I'm going to end up doing them both anyway and then at the last at the 11th hour just my stomach brain which is the one must we must almost always listen to because your head brain is your functional one, your heart brain is your emotional one, your stomach brain is your intuition, and my stomach brain was screaming, "Don't do it!" And I'm really glad I didn't because I haven't looked back since. And what's your biggest priority for the year ahead? Get out of lockdown. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like it's the 1920s. <laughs> um, I mean, there is that. Jesus. I mean, I haven't been in a restaurant since December the 9th, I think. And I'm just absolutely cannot, even not even being in restaurants, just even just, you know, hugging my family and my friends. I just, you know, that's got to be a priority. Business wise, uh, Touchwood, you know, we're, we're in a good shape, both Glow and Social Element. We've got big plans to grow. So we've got to make sure we deliver on all those. We're also... Glow is the um, lead agency for Virgin Red, which is Virgin's new loyalty program, which is launching this year. And and we've got a lot kind of, you know, vested in that, a lot of partnerships. We've, we're doing everything from creative to CRM, media with all our partner agencies. So we've got to make sure that Virgin Red launches, and I know it will, launches beautifully and really challenges that, that loyalty market. Busy times. So... Emma, how would you define your leadership style? The word authentic popped into my head and then I just thought, oh, that's so cheesy. So I don't know, what's more than authentic? Family? I think, you know, I think the reason I'd say family is because in in much like families, there's a lot of love and a lot of discipline, you know, so I suppose it's quite maternal. I don't think I'm an easy person to work with because my standards are quite high. And my energy is quite fast. And I'm a, I'm in, on a DISC profile. For those of you that know DISC, I'm right at the top of the clock, which means I'm big, big, big picture. So I'm not a big fan of detail. So I think for those people that work with me that love their, their detail, Wendy's nodding, um, I can be quite a challenge. But yeah, I think the most important thing for me is just being really open and honest and really, really human. So if you've done well, you'll know about it. If you haven't done well, you know about it. But it's all done with a big heap of love. And have you been influenced by other leaders along the way? Or have you got any sort of go-to business books? 
I don't know if you would call it a business book, but my favourite book, which I always bang on about when I'm doing sort of boot campy stuff, is is a book called by William Whitecloud called The Magician's Way. And I'm not a massive fan of business books or self-help books at all. But this book is a fictional book, but it's it's about this guy's journey. And it's about, I suppose it's the headline, it's kind of the law of attraction. It's how you influence what happens to you and how you can unlock a lot of negativity by thinking differently. And it starts off with this guy who is really his job's awful and his marriage is awful and everything is a bit rubbish. And he, someone says to him, look, go and see my golf coach. And he's like, buying rubbish at golf as well. And he goes along and um, the guy says to him, right, hit the tree with the ball. And the guy's like, well, I, I'm really rubbish. Seriously, I'm really rubbish at golf. And he said, well, just hit the tree. So he tries and he obviously fails. And the golf coach says, well, what's going on? He's on trying to get my arms and my hips and my shoulders and trying to think about my swing circle. And the, and the coach says, okay, forget what you're doing and focus on the tree. So the guy's like, uh, okay, and then tries it again, misses, and the coach says, you're still thinking about your hips and your swing. And obviously after about 10 goes, the coach keeps getting it and he gets out of his own body and just almost like becomes the tree and then he hits the tree. And that's the beginning of the story and that's the lesson. And we all, you know, that's the point of my story about the vision for GLOW, that you you see something, focusing on your outcomes, especially when things are tough, focusing on the future, and putting that focus, that energy into knowing what you want and believing you're going to get it, realistically, obviously, I'm not going to become a, uh, I'm not going to become a, a supermodel overnight. But, you know, that it's just knowing that ideal outcome you can achieve and focusing on that and not, we get very bogged down into the, into the why and the how and, and very bogged down into how's that how's that going to be possible and just the power of focusing on the now i've slightly gone off tangent i think but no no I really white clouds and the magician's way is absolutely brilliant book wonderful i know that you're an ambassador for the marketing academy and it's something that you're really passionate about is is sort of helping people coming into the industry what advice would you give young marketers entering the industry i, th- I think i'll go back to that advice i gave my teenage self is that belief thing is that you can you can achieve anything the first thing is you have to just know what you want um and particularly for women i do a lot of mentoring of women in the marketing academy and often they send me a list of questions ahead and they're like you know can you talk me through your path through that and then actually when you get speech then they go how do you have kids and be successful and i think a lot of young women think that's going to be the end of their career and it absolutely isn't you know, here I am running my own business, running, you know, more than my own business. And I've got four kids and it's, you know, I'm not saying it's easy. And I think lockdown has been very interesting because a lot of us have realized that all trains go via us. Um, I have taught my husband how to use the washing machine. That was a big breakthrough I didn't realize I had to make. <laughs> but I, you know, it's just that it's a choice. I remember that one of the first mentoring sessions I ever did was a young woman who was pregnant and wanted and was about to tell her boss and was terrified and me explaining to her the way you tell him will completely influence his response so you walk in there apologizing cap in hand saying it's okay I'll be back after 10 minutes and you know it won't affect my performance you know we'll put him in a particular position you walk in and go great news I'm pregnant and this is the plan and own it and control it and it really had an impact in fact her and I are still in touch Uh, and and it's it's that so it's just 
again, I think I've gone off on a tangent, but know what you want. And once your unconscious mind knows that that's what you're going to get, it will influence the way you speak and how you influence other people. Look at the tree. Look at the tree. Don't worry about how you're going to get to the tree. Beautiful. Thank you, Wendy. So we're moving on to the last part of the podcast now where we're going to get a bit more personal. I hope that's okay, Emma. Absolutely. Um, So we'll jump right in with what's your guilty pleasure? My guilty pleasure is quite embarrassing, actually. I love playing. I'm actually going to say beating Turkish men at backgammon. That sounds a bit random. Um, (laughs) Tomorrow's going to spit out her water. But um, there's an app which you can play backgammon and and I just got a bit bored of always beating the computer. So I thought it would be quite fun to play strangers. So you can sign on, you know, it's a bit like chess.com, but for backgammon. But I don't know why all of the people on it are Turkish men. And I don't think they know I'm an English woman, so I don't know. But one of them the other day called me a jerk, I realised, having gone into Google Translate and worked out what it was. But yes, that's what, key, you know, when you've had a ridiculously long day and you haven't done anything for yourself. That's sort of why I might spend half an hour, an hour before sleep beating Turkish men back. Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> so what's your idea of a perfect weekend? I mean, at the moment, it would just be seeing other humans that haven't either come out of my body or been quite attached to it. Um, I think that would be a good start. Just, but yeah, I mean, I mean, my for my 50th, which is next year, um, my hope is to spend the weekend with all my best mates in New York. That for me is the perfect weekend. I'm a big New York fan. Uh, I know I'm not alone on this podcast and saying that, but yeah, the minute I get off that plane, I hear, I'm a native New Yorker, comes into my head and I just, <laughs> you know, connect with everything that's wonderful about the people and the culture and the place. So that would be my perfect weekend. And apart from the Backgammon app, what app could you not live without? Uh, this is That's a really difficult one. Um, it is probably, I don't know, would you consider WhatsApp an app? Yep. Yes. I don't know. If WhatsApp's an app, I'm just constantly on WhatsApp. Because that's, but I don't know if that's just at the moment, if that's an obvious thing to say, but if that's just at the moment. But because it's where I that's where I'm getting my energy from. I'm, I'm an extreme E in Myers-Briggs and I'm, I, you know, just even just those chats, I mean, a lot of groups and it's so cute. Actually, my kids know the different groups and they're like, Oh, are you on hee hee or cocktails uh, or girls night out? You know, it's all these different groups. And I think that at the moment is keeping me going um, in what I would call peacetime, <laughs> maybe ASOS. Is that allowed to, Danny would probably say he's sick of getting access to live <laughs> And if you could invent something, what would it be? I don't know if this is an invention, but I do think there's a gap in the market and it is my dream to one day do this. But tomorrow we're both members of members clubs and they're really useful and they're fabulous places to go. But as a mum, I really would love there to be a members club that was really inclusive to families. So I actually, in 2015, connected with a friend of mine who was amazing, with Heather, who ran the customer experience for the Olympics. And it's still our dream to do it. We got quite far. And then for a number of reasons, it never happened. But our plan was to have a members club where you can, you know, like Soho House, you can go and you can work and you can have fabulous food and drink. But there's also a creche or a, a kid's area. So you can, you know, go there work for the day, go and pick the kids up from school, throw them in the creche. You know, they can be with brilliant 
creche people who are teaching them and inspiring them and they're doing art and cooking and fabulous stuff and those things do exist but just as the kids club there's nowhere that does both there's a place called purple dragon which is in chelsea which is that it's that for kids but it hasn't got the grown-ups bit as well so to put that offering together that would be my absolute dream and it can be it's a bit like the kind of american country club vibe where it's somewhere at the weekend you might go for a roast and you might go there on a Tuesday night because they're doing a wine tasting and it just becomes a place for like-minded people, but all out of central London. So that's, you know, I think more than ever now, there's so many people working from home. I don't want to be here all day because I end up doing the washing and getting distracted by the fact that things, you know, the kids are around. So just, but I don't want to have to slap into to town. Mm. I've given away my secret now. Someone's going to steal it. No, you it. just need to do it. Do it now. Now that you've told the world, you need to do it before someone nicks it. Oh, yeah, I know. In my spare time. I'll do it in my spare time. You heard it here first, so no one can steal it now. <laughs> so, Emma, if I if I could gift you an extra hour every day, what would you do with it? I think it's probably a really boring answer, but I'd probably just spend it with my kids because... That's another thing as a working parent, you just feel like you're generally failing on every level. You're not working enough and you're not spending enough time with your kids. And I noticed it in little ways, like last night, I said I put my four-year-old in the bath and then I got a phone call. So the nanny went to do it and he just cried and cried. And I was on the phone like, shh. And then eventually came on the phone and said, what's the matter? And he was like, you said you were gonna give me a bath. And you realize that little heartbreak. Mm So I think, you know, that's a big thing for me right now. I say delighted that my kids are currently not in the house. <laughs> but yeah, I think if I had an extra hour day, it'd probably just, you know, more stories, more games. They can't get enough from you. And I suppose I always have that little lens in my head that my mom got taken for me when I was 12. So you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Make the most of it. That sounds good. And how would your friends describe you? Um, I don't know. I ask you that question. How would you like your friends to describe you? Okay, (laughs) the good stuff. I mean, I think everyone always says I'm a whirlwind. When I was single, my friends lived vicariously through me that didn't have kids because it was like, where are you this week? You know, New York, Paris, Milan. So, yeah, I think I think, you know, larger than life is something people always say about me. Just, you know, a whirlwind, big heart, big mouth. (laughs) If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Such a good question. I don't know if you guys have seen Wonder Woman 1984. Have you seen it? No, no, no. It's on my list. Ah, it's real. we watched it last night. It's really good. And it's really interesting because I won't give too much away, but that it did make me think if I could do one thing, what would it be? And I we've touched on it, but I think if I could sort of instead of the X-ray where I see through people, but give people confidence. If I had a superpower that would turn the noises down in our heads, we just switch that off or certainly quieten it down. I think you know it keeps you humble, doesn't it? But if I could do that for the people I love, I think that would be amazing superpower to have. No one's invented that superhero yet, so maybe there's a story. And you could star in your own movie and win that Oscar. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I would say you're doing it already, Emma. So you've you've got that superpower already. Oh, Emma, this has been such a brilliant time talking to you like this. And before we finish off, is there anything that you wish that Wendy and I had actually asked you or any closing thoughts? No, I don't think so. I think that, you know, we've sort of touched on most of the areas of my life. I think that, you know, talking about my mum's illness, you know, and all that stuff is really such a big part of who I am. And when I talk about my leadership, 
it really has influenced who I am as a person. So I think it's really good we touched on that. I'm amazed I didn't cry. I'm quite impressed with myself. You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency.